And suddenly they were compartmentalized, structured, disciplined. And I, when I arrived there once, uh, one of my investigators said, you have to come like right now. As I got off the plane, I was like, can I go to hotels? No, no, you got to see this. And I said, what is it? I, you just got to see it. I was okay. So we went to a community where I had been many times before, an MS-13 community. This is in Honduras or This is in Honduras, Honduras and yeah. near San Pedro Sula. And all of the tags and on the wall and said, everything had been painted over and everything looked really nice. And people were sort of out in the streets. And I was like, what's going on? And so in talking to the MS-13, essentially they said, look, I said, what happened to the, to your tags? Like, did the police come and paint them over? And they said, no, we did that. And I said, why? I said, because that's what, that's what kids would do. Like when we were immature young people, that's, you know, we did that. Now we are. And we're adults. Uh, we're adults. Welcome to Border Wars, the first bilingual podcast that goes beyond the border. Welcome to the Border Wars podcast. We are the number one podcast in the Americas, the only bilingual podcast that takes you beyond the border. And now, if you're new to the podcast, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. Uh, hit the little bell icon so you get notifications. And if you listen to us on Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast, be sure to subscribe there as well. I say it's the number one podcast, not because of me, but I say it's the number one podcast because of our guests. And today I'm pleased and honored to have a tremendous guest, a friend, a mentor, somebody that I've looked up to for a very long time, uh, both because of the quality of his investigations. He's a career investigator, both in uh, as a journalist, also as uh, in the private sector and, and as a national security consultant. But I say mostly because uh, unlike a lot of investigators that lately, he doesn't just uh, investigate from his house. He goes to these countries. He goes to the places to where he's looking. Uh, he talks to people. He, he, he basically mingles in with the communities and he tries to understand uh, specific threats that are happening, but very much from the ground up. Doug, it's good to see you. It's good to have you here. Uh, how are things? How, how's everything? How's the pandemic been? Well, thank you, Joseph. Thank you for that very generous uh, introduction. Um, no, things are good. Things are, you know, the region, the Latin American region is in you know, significant difficulties right yeah. now. So there's lots of, have you, you, so you've been around Latin America for most of your career. Right. Have you seen it this bad? No, I think what we, what we haven't seen, what I haven't seen before is the level of diversity among the criminal actors and among the states and sort of the, the complete, in many cases, lack of ideology and simply economic drivers and all of the old norms of behavior, what we could expect like from the FARC, what we could yeah. expect from the Mexican cartels, what we could even expect from the Bolivarians has really gone sort of out the window. And we're yeah. in sort of this whole new world where everyone's experimenting with how far they can go. And so far they can go pretty far. <laughs> so it's like not exactly what the Cold War was, right? Where there was a huge ideological component on capitalism, socialism. This has become more, a little bit more of just a, a world of you believe in certain rules that exist among democracies and international order, or you don't, or you don't. Right. And, and you say, we're going to play by other rules and we're just going to, uh, you know, narco trafficking, international trade, gold smuggling, illicit gold. You're just going to mix it all together and you're going to play by those rules. Is that, is that fair to characterize it in some I, way? I, I think so. I mean, having been through the cold war proxy wars in Central America, there were certain things that, didn't happen because either the United States wouldn't let them happen or the Soviets and the, and the Cuban proxies in Nicaragua wouldn't let happen. For example, the FMLN in El Salvador desperately wanted 
surface air missiles to hit US yeah, uh, helicopters. And the people who said no were the Russians, the Soviets. Yeah. They said, you can't. You, you don't can't, want to escalate a war. We don't want to escalate yeah. that because you that the Americans are going to blame contras us. And yeah. then it gets out of control. So you had certain limits on what could happen. And it was played out in, a, I would say, an understandable context. As a journalist in that uh, time, you know, I, there, one took risks because one, if you went into combat and things, but no one wanted to kill a journalist. Mm -hmm. you know, they, it was bad for everybody because international opinion mattered greatly. U.S. support mattered. Soviet support mattered. The Cubans didn't want to look bad. So there were certain parameters in which things operated, yeah. and they were understandable. They were identifiable, and if you had, if you behaved by those rules or understood those rules. Your chances of coming out okay were, were were pretty good as a journalist. Now all those rules are gone. We're seeing in Mexico, we're seeing in Brazil, we're seeing in lots of places where journalists, you know, those rules are gone. But it's much more than that. As, as you said, you have groups that are now doing drug trafficking, human smuggling, gold, methamphetamines, anything they can get their hands on with the complicity of the state or buying parts of the state or taking over part of state functions that have completely changed the dynamic of the region. Okay, so let's go, let's go to, so one of the things that's I think really interesting about Doug, and, and, and when I first met you, so people that know me, obviously my parents are from Bolivia. Uh, so you were born in Bolivia, right? You were born in Beni, is that right? I, I actually went there when I was 18 months old. Into okay, Benny. so you weren't born in Bolivia, but you're, you're, you're very young. When I you were, was very young, yes. So tell, do you remember your time in Bolivia? Oh, I, well, I stayed there through high school, and then oh, I wow. got married okay. there, and okay, worked, so, worked there for. <laughs> so you know Bolivia. I, I remember. I remember a lot of Bolivia. Where in Bolivia were you? Were you? I spent a lot of time in the Beni near yeah. Riberalta, and but mostly in La Paz. And How was it back then? Because even today, it's not like super developed. The Riberalta in that area back in the day was like the backside of nowhere. You, you, know, you could you couldn't fly in on commercial flights. You had to. My parents were missionaries. So they had little missionary aircraft, you know, little Helios and little Cessnas that would fly people around. It was mostly river transportation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the only electricity that existed were the generators, like the missionaries would set up. Yeah. And there were. It was a very you know mail would take maybe two months to get in from the United States. You had to go to the Ribeiralta, to the river, to pick up your stuff at the boats that were delivering. That's them. how the mail came? That's how the through mail the, came. Through the river? Through the river, yeah. Oh, wow. So, okay. so how, it was okay. a very different world. <laughs> Trying to visualize it. How, do you, how, does the, how does it know where to stop? Well, it would stop in Ribeiralta, and then you had to go, and then it would drop it at the oh, boats in Ribeiralta, okay. and then we would So all the mail would go to like a central point? Right, and, and okay. then, then everyone would, you know, and there were, because we, the missionaries had a small community, there was, a, you know, a lot of, relatively a lot of mail for them. <laughs> so. And where did you go to high school? Was it in Riberalto or did you go to La Paz? I went to the international school in La Paz. In La Paz, yeah. okay. And how was that? How was La Paz? It was also pretty much a small town at the yeah. time. You yeah. know, there was very, uh, you know, you had the Alto, then you had the upper, you know, the downtown, and yeah. then you had Obrajes Calacoto, which yeah, is where, still, where, where, where but then it didn't go all the way up the way it, okay. the way it does now. It stopped it. at that time. If you got to... Calle 21 in Calacoto, that was the end of the road. Now I think it goes okay. like miles, miles past there. And uh, everything's developed and you have all this other stuff there. For those that don't know La Paz, Bolivia, it's, I think, famous for being the highest capital in the world. I'm not sure if That's it's the true. whole world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's very high. Did the elevation mess with you? Because you came in from pretty much a little, lot lower in the river in Riberalta to the mountains. It would, it would affect me when I went there. From the lowlands to the highlands, yeah. it would affect me for a couple of days. But I lived there, so you know, yeah, you I, acclimate. I, I acclimate. I played played a lot of basketball and, and things. One of the one time I went back, having not having been in La Paz for a long time, and I went to play basketball with my old team. 
and I played like the first chord. I said, you have to play. And I was like, fine. And then I just, my body used up every oxygen cell <laughs> I had. And I just sort of keeled over like a plank. Well, you remind me, there's a story actually says kind of, yeah, so I went to Bolivia when I was a kid, not uh, for any extended period of time, but I would go for like a few weeks, a month, maybe visit my grandmother. And uh, I remember one of my visits, there was a flight from Colombia to La Paz. It was like a direct, I think it was Avianca. It was like a direct flight. And it happened like in the middle of the morning. It was like all the flights to La Paz, for whatever reason, get there like at three or 4 a.m. or something right. like that. And I, I was on one of these flights. It was an ex a connection from the U.S. And um, I'm standing in line. And I remember like you get, it's kind of vague in my memory, but I remember you get out of the plane. You're almost right in immigration as soon as you get out because the airport was very small. Right, it was very small. And we get out and I, I think it was like a karate team or something from Colombia because they had medals. They had oh. medals and they had trophies and like they won a tournament or something like that. And they're from Colombia and uh, they were coming to um, to Bolivia. And the lady, in, well, lady, the, the young woman in front of me, you know, she's waiting for her immigration and she starts like rocking. Right. Like this. And I'm like, uh oh. And the next thing you know, whoa. And yeah. I caught her. Oh, so wow. like she didn't like hit her head or anything. And I'm sitting there, but I thought for a second they brought oxygen. They had oxygen tanks. Right, oxygen they, tanks, they, they brought right, yeah. the oxygen tank, you know, got her good. And I thought to myself, well, if the karate champion is like falling out, what about the rest of us? Like, we need oxygen too. And I remember that. And I know Bolivia, like it's it's also famous for uh, only winning its soccer games in La Paz. In La Paz like it's right. hard. Bolivia doesn't have the, you know, the best soccer team. They made World, World Cup a few times, but um, they had a hard time on the road. But when people, even I think champions like Brazil, when they got to La Paz and they'd be like, oh my gosh, this is yeah, a- No, it's a different world. Yeah, the, the lack of oxygen is very telling. Yeah, when's the last time you've been to Bolivia? I have not gone back since I think 2011. Yeah, is that was, because of the government there or is it just- Yes, I wrote a long study of Evo Morales and the Bolivarian takeover of Bolivia and the authoritarian trends and the abuses that were happening in that situation, which Evo Morales read at the time and then decided he didn't want me to come back. Okay. So, he put you on the short so list. He put me on the short list. So mm -hmm. I have not, I have not gone back since then. Okay. And then when did you, uh, you know, going back to after high school, when did you, uh, you went, left, went to college here in the U S I imagine. I stayed there for several years, uh, working in rural development. And then I came to the university of Kansas to study journalism. Okay. And then, uh, and then I ended up from there going straight to El Salvador to cover the wars there. Okay. So you went straight right back to Latin America. Yes, I was actually going to go back to Bolivia as what I had set up. And then uh, United Press International offered me the bureau chief job in El Salvador in the middle of the war because nobody else wanted yeah. the job. Uh, so that's how I ended up straight. You just like started as a war correspondent right from the beginning. It was right off the bat. I spoke Spanish, which is a huge yeah. advantage. Um, and I was, you know, somewhat familiar with the, with the culture and how things worked, but I was not used to wars. <laughs> so when, when you mentioned in the beginning, you said, you said it was a very different time back then. Uh, even though there was a war, uh, it was a very br brutal war, uh, but nonetheless, there was almost some sense of a just an international understanding of what the geopolitical context is of why this is happening and where the limits to some level. You mentioned the, the service that you missed, the SAMs, that the Soviets didn't want the, 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 the insurgents to get in El Salvador. Um, what was your biggest memory of that time? that really sticks with you to today? Cause you cover Salvador a lot today. You're probably the, to me, like probably the top expert, a uh, national security expert on El Salvador in the United States. So what stuck with you from that time? Well, one was the, the level of brutality uh, was very high on, in certain sectors, but it's very segmented out. You know? So it wasn't massive violence like you're seeing in Ukraine now or something where, or Syria where you have, you know, massive populations being destroyed. Um, I think this, the, the amazing 
number of people. People would always say, well, you see all these horrible things in war. Like, what, what makes it worthwhile? And what made it worthwhile was you'd also find these amazing people in the middle of conflicts yeah. who are doing unbelievable things at incredible risk for all the right reasons. And I think I just, I learned so much there from uh, watching other people, from being able to participate in that. And there was such a sense of hope when the war ended. Yeah. You know, there was, it was uh, a negotiated end, um, generally viewed as a... This is like in the mid-80s or something? This so? is no, early, early, early 1992 okay. uh, when that ended. Um, and to watch all of that disappear now is what's the most tragic. And to hear people tell me regularly things are so much better in the war than they are now, I'm like, wow, that's a government failure right there by any measure. So I think what that, and I was planning on talking about this a little later, but I think it's a good point we could, because what really now resonates when I think just your average American listens or hears about El Salvador is unfortunately the gangs. Right. So back then there really wasn't that level of the intensity of what we know today, I imagine, correct? With there wasn't, there was no gang. There were no gangs until the mid 1990s. So the gangs came after the war. Okay. Um, when the, as a product or just a separate phenomenon? No, what happened was that throughout the war, you'd had a mass migration out of El Salvador, yeah. largely to Southern California as yeah. the initial point of entry. And in that period, and from the early 80s to the 90s in that decade, you had a lot of Salvadorans who were, or Central Americans in general, who were arrested for crimes or had served their time in U.S. prisons. And the Clinton administration decided when the wars ended that it, they could start deporting these people back to their home countries. Okay. So they were illegal. They were not you know, residents or citizens here, so they would deport them back. So they started deporting back these kids by the tens of thousands. And... Uh, they had formed the MS-13 in prison in Southern Here, California. Yeah. To, to defend against the Mexicans, the Mexican mafia right, who was right. controlling. It was, it, was, uh, it was a gang war in the prisons here at uh, what now seem, would seem like a, probably a relatively benign level. But mm -hmm. there was, you know, there were certainly violence. And so they'd banded together. And then when they went back home, a lot of these kids had never been to El Salvador. Okay. A lot of them didn't speak Spanish. So they immediately reformed into the gang again because mm -hmm. that was their self-preservation method. And on top of that, you had, you know, tens of thousands of highly trained people coming out of a conflict who were able to start channeling the, those kids' energies into what became the MS-13 with structure and order and weapons training and all. So, was it things. considered MS-13 back when it was a prison gang in, in Los Angeles or wherever in Southern California, or did it officially be, get that moniker once it was formed more robustly in Salvador? No, it was MS-13 when it arrived. When it arrived, yeah. so they, they went with that, right. it was, which is Mara Salvatrucho. Marasabatrucha trece, right? Right. I always wonder what's the trece about. So the M is the thirteenth letter of the alphabet. Okay. So that's ah, uh, some logic. Yeah, there yeah, we that, go. <laughs> so. That's why every everything that the gangs do yeah. involves the number thirteen. So yeah. I mean, not to get too much into my own history, but here, Northern Virginia, we've always had a gang problem right. here because this is, I think, the second largest. It's not because, but one of the reasons is there's a second largest Salvadorian community. I think in the United States is here in the Northern Virginia, Southern Maryland. Uh, area and a lot of them have relatives in Los Angeles and a lot of the folks in Los Angeles that ended up becoming part of the MS-13 or other gangs uh, you know would come here and visit some moved here and then they eventually started chapters out here around the same time around the mid-90s and then eventually it grew up and I remember the early 2000s it became a big problem because the uh, law enforcement had to deal with homicides and different things that were happening even at the high school level um, but you know I remember there was a lot of at that time I grew up around here and I remember there was a lot of subsets with the number 13. Right. It wasn't MS, but it was like, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, I don't just pick a name, 13 or something, 14, right. the name of a street, you know, 
uh, Lee Highway 13 and yeah. things like that. And I always wonder what was that? Was that like a legacy thing from MS or? or, or I, I don't really know about what happened yeah. up here. What you had in, in Central America was the formation of what they call clicas, which were the different little branches of the MS-13, and they almost always bring the name 13 with mm. them. They'd be the Mara Salvatrucha Locos Tecleños 13. Okay. Yeah, it's the, what, yeah, that kind of thing. That, those were the clicas. But that doesn't mean that they're formally part of MS, right? Or in they, El Salvador, it does. It does? Yeah, okay. or Central America, it does. Okay. I, don't, I don't know up here what the, okay. how, what the dynamic is. So like subsidiaries, if you want to say something like No, they're actually, they, they're structured that way. They have clicas. Uh, are, are the MS-13 at a neighborhood level organized and structured that okay. way. So there's a jefe de clica, there's a leader of that clica, mm -hmm. then there's a leader above that, and there's the, the ramfla, which is the overall leadership. And each each group has its own leader. So the leader of the clica reports to the leader of the programa, who reports to the... Oh, well, there's a whole ramfla. order of battle then. Yeah, there's a whole structure. How uh, big is MS-13 uh, approximate, I'm sure? Not in, in El Salvador. Salvador, yeah. Salvador, they estimate the police, the last... Serious police estimate I saw was around thirty-five thousand. Oh something. wow, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's a lot. Yeah, that's, that's of members, and they have more members than they can, or they have more wannabes than can incorporate. And it's a little, the numbers are a little squishy because you have the kids who want to become okay. MS-13. They're given certain tasks, like most, mostly as lookouts. And so, if you go into MS-13 territory, you'll always see these kids with cell phones. Mm. And as soon as a strange car or an unknown person you know comes into their territory, they call. Okay. The next kid calls, the next kid calls, say that, you know, this car is coming and these people are coming. Um, but they're not, in MS-13 eyes, they have not been jumped into the MS-13. Okay. So they're not official gang members, but they're working for the gang at that point in the hopes of becoming gang members. So what, what in, in Salvador, what parts of the country are the density of where the MS-13 controls? Well, right now it's pretty much the entire country. I mean, that's one. But that's, did it start that way, or was it? No, it was mostly. I I first dealt with the MS-13 in 1996, 1997. They had come. You know, they were just beginning to show themselves as. They, they were doing a lot of, it was mostly petty crime at the time. Yeah. They mm -hmm. would come in and they'd steal, you know, your earrings in a bus or they'd hold up a bus and steal people's purses. So I had been negotiating as a journalist with a photographer to get into that, to go see some of these guys. And, and was so, this mostly in San Salvador? This or? was in Santa Tecla, right outside, Tecla, right okay. outside San Salvador, one of the big sort of uh, suburbs or little separate cities, but right next to it. And so eventually they said, we, I could go in. And so I said, okay. So I went in and they said, well, you know, you're going to meet the jefe de clica. And I said, okay. And he said, I got there and he said, hola Douglas, como estas? He knew who you were. And I was like, well, he said, you don't recognize me. And I said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't. <laughs> he said, I was with the FMLN, the Special Forces. Oh, he remembers you from the 80s. He said, you visited my camp and, you know, it's nice to see you again. Yeah. And I said, oh, great. You know, nice to see you too. And then he said, I wanted to introduce you to my second in command. He said, this is former... Captain so-and-so from the U.S. Special Trained Forces. And I was like, wait a minute, the Atlakat Battalion with the, with the FMLN Special Forces, obviously the ideological divide had dissolved, but you had these two highly trained guys running the clicas from the very beginning. Which they were in prison? They were not in prison. This, yeah. this was in the early days. When they, they all, this was the generation that died very quickly. Okay, they were okay. very violent and they died very quickly. But my understanding of the gang's it's been somewhat different from other investigators because that was my first introduction to them. There's there's this mythology about how the the gangs were these sort of disorganized kids out there doing yeah. stuff, and almost from the beginning they had serious leadership yeah. and people that were trained, people that yeah. were highly trained. I mean these were these were not just 
like grunts. These are people that had gone to Cuba to study. There are yeah. people that have been brought to Fort Bragg to train. I mean, these were like upper level that is people. A, that is a common misnomer then because I think we, when you th- hear about gangs, you think about youth and you think about delinquency. But you're talking now more like almost level of insurgency. Um, well, this, I mean, the... the the mass of the gangs were the kids, yeah, right? Yeah. But they That's had maybe the most visible, right? We right. see on the streets, yeah. exactly. And it was it, because in this time, and and it wasn't just El Salvador, it was in, in Honduras and Guatemala as well. You were coming out of war, and what had happened in, in El Salvador specifically was they disbanded all the security forces. They had three security okay. forces, and so they formed a new police force, and it was one third former guerrillas, one third former uh, state security. Yeah. And one third new recruits that had at least a high school level. Okay. But you're talking about people with no police background. And so into this fragile state, you start dumping tens of thousands of kids who are violent and facing and being organized by people who knew how to organize and train them. And that's what gave the, the gangs, in my opinion, such a rapid rise. Because in that circumstance, no country could you know, really defend themselves against. And the other thing that one has to remember is that the Clinton administration never told any of the countries that these kids were coming back. They just started deporting them. Just dumped them there. And they didn't tell them these were violent criminals who who have just served their sentence in the United States. So no one was prepared for them. There was Mm -hmm. no, like, what do we do with these kids? Suddenly they were just there. And that gave, uh, that was the wind that gave rise to them becoming such a serious problem so quickly because people say, how did it happen? It happened because there was, multiple policy screw-ups along yeah. the way that got them there. You know what it actually kind of, in some ways, and I know it's not the same and there's a lot of nuance to it, but it, it somewhat almost reminds me of what happened in Iraq, you know, we, we, with the developing of the insurgency, mm-hmm. which a lot of them were Baathists that were served in the military in the beginning and that they were demilitarized and they were sent away and they, right. they, they didn't have anywhere to go and they started creating the little groups. And even to the point that you were saying um, where, the, where they were uh, establishing to some level a, a command and control structure, but use just common day people to do kind of the street surveillance. Uh, that was right. very much a part of the, the uh, Iraqi insurgency and the early parts, uh, I'm talking about 2003, four, five of the war. But okay, so, so that's the, the formation of it. And you, you were there pretty much since uh, the early days looking at it. But now, where is MS-13? Now, how does it look um, in El Salvador? Because as you mentioned, it pretty much controls the whole country. And I imagine at this level, you're getting into the highest levels of organized crime, as well as uh, what they call, I guess, in Central America, narcopolitica, right? Uh, politicians that are corrupt and things. So how does it look today? Well, I think there are two very distinct models. One is the, what the MS-13 is doing in Honduras, which mm-hmm. is becoming a sophisticated drug trafficking organization. And one is what's happening in El Salvador, where they're becoming a real political pro, uh, pro, power on, mm-hmm. unto themselves through their pact with the, not only with the Bukele administration, they, they did it with the Funes government Sanchez and Sanchez Aran, and then it became fully formed, I would say, with- Is, the, is this kind of like Bukele. a, a, a um, you know, I mean, not to get into the FARC stuff, but is this like, is there a, ri- a, a, a method to, to, to why they do these peace agreements to kind of buy time or to legitimize something? Or what's the reason and, they go into this? In the, in the initial truce in 2012 in El Salvador, it was a homicide rates were astronomically high. I remember, yeah. There were uh, probably 110 homicides per 100,000 people. The United States averages nine. You're in crisis if you're over seven or eight. Yeah. And so 110 is, of course, you know, off the charts. It was like something um, like some every every minute, every hour. Yeah, it was, it was huge. They were there. And so the Funes administration was desperate to bring down the homicide rates because... 
it was politically costly and it was also uh, the, human, the, the human cost was extremely high. But what they negotiated was essentially a narco pact. The, what the narcos wanted was safe transit through certain parts of El Salvador. Okay. What the gangs wanted was money and what Funes wanted was a drop in homicides. So essentially the, gang, the narcos began to pay for free transit. Some of that money went to the gangs and the gangs agreed to stop killing people in such large numbers. Mm. So that was what was agreed to in <laughs> doesn't private. doesn't sound like that could last. <laughs> it, it couldn't. Then it was portrayed as this uh, gang repentance movement. They were, But what they completely ignored throughout the entire process were the victims. And yeah. that's been the consistent problem with all of these things that they try to do with in the in secret is that the f most affected people have no say in the process and there's no restorative justice or anything like that so that fell apart after a couple of years and then what but what that interim taught them the two years in prison and that time i was able to go visit them in prison i knew some of the leadership was that uh they had power they had never realized until that process of, of yeah, they had political power yeah. they had political power and they I, I went to meet the Ramfla in the prison one time and I knew some of the guys from when you say were, Ramfla you're talking about the head the, of the, the national leadership national leader, yeah, yeah the national leader, is the that leader. an acronym or is that a uh, no it's, it's, it's a, a term it's yeah. a term yeah um, and so I was saying like how does this like how does this work because uh, it was clear that they were getting a lot of benefits from this and they, they laughed and they said you wouldn't believe it the Minister of Defense will come and he will say uh, you know, tell us what to do. And we'll say, no, we don't want to do that. Um, we want televisions. We want <laughs> polio campero. We want prostitutes. We want whatever. And, and the government always says no. And then we just throw bodies on the streets until they come back and say yes. And I was like. Uh, it sounds like the worst moral hazard that you yeah. can create where you've just incentivized the worst behavior. And that's what would happen. You'd have yeah. these, it, it, not unlike what happened recently in El Salvador, you had these periods of peace and then these huge spikes in homicides when they would get what they wanted. And so, but peace as long as the refrigerators and stuff are, are, are getting exactly. delivered, and then once that stops, and there was never really the peace that was portrayed either, because what we were finding was there were massive amounts of clandestine cemeteries. So instead of oh. killing people and dumping the bodies on the street, which is causes them. alarm and people get scared, if you kill somebody, cut them up and bury them in a shallow grave, and nobody notices they're gone, especially yeah. other gang members. Their families aren't going to report them. And, and and I imagine that they didn't get away from the other elements of organized crime, which like extortion and, and, and the other things that you could do that aren't necessarily homicides, right? Well, the, the gang's lifeblood was extortion, yeah. the financial lifeblood. And what's really interesting is in Honduras is that that no longer is. As they moved in, if you, in, El, in Honduras, what you had is the DEA went in in 2014, 2015, 2016, essentially to clear out what we now know was the competition to President Juan Orlando Hernandez, who's now in prison in the U.S. for drug trafficking. But we'll, as, we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. But essentially they cleared out the, all of the normal transportista networks, the groups that moved the dope from further south to Guatemala to Mexico were taken out, except for the MS-13. And they had, okay. they had dreamed of this moment arriving. And so they were, and I was stunned because I deal with them a lot and I, over a period of time, long, many years, and suddenly they were compartmentalized, structured, disciplined. And I, when I arrived there once, uh, one of my investigators said, you have to come like right now. As I got off the plane, I was like, can I go to the hotel? I said, no, no, you got to see this. And I said, what is it? I, you just got to see it. I said, okay. So we went to a community where I had been many times before, an MS-13 community. This is in Honduras or This is in Honduras, Honduras. near San Pedro Sula. 
and all of the tags and on the wall and said, everything had been painted over and everything looked really nice. And people were sort of out in the streets and I was like, what's going on? And so in talking to the MS-13, essentially they said, look, I said, what happened to the, to your tags? Like, did the police come and paint them over? And they said, no, we did that. And I said, why? I said, cause that's what, that's what kids would do. Like when we were immature young people, that's, you know, we did that. Now we are, and we're adults. Uh, we're adults. Yeah. And so as they got into drug trafficking, they actually made the formal decision to stop extorting because people in the communities hated extortion. Yeah. If you were running your little local store and you had to pay uh, extortion every month, you paid extortion to get on the bus to go to work, get a less than minimum wage job. You paid extortion to get back on the bus to go home. You lived in constant it's fear like, it's of like your a children. Tax, it was, yeah, it was, it was just, but it devastated their lives. You're making, you know, Nothing. But then they're starting to think like politicians, right? Well, that was the, what was fascinating to me was that they had made a conscious decision to forego that economic. Because thinking about public opinion, because they had the money from mm. drug trafficking coming in, and they switched out. And so now, if you go to most of the MS-13 areas of in Honduras, they call the MS-13 La Mara Buena, the good gang. <laughs> Um, are they in suits and stuff? And not, not they're cool. they're they're not in suits, but they're but their communities are quiet. Okay, um, they provide security. They actually usually in most of the places you'll have the the boss of the clique of the local gang will come in a couple times a week and they'll listen to all the problems of the community. Mm. Uh, this guy beat his wife. Did you beat his your wife? Did you not beat your wife? They'll do a little investigation, and if you did, you get beaten. If Man, you didn't, it, it, it reminds me so much of Iraq. Yeah, that, that, it was you know they. So, okay, so let's let, let's take that to now the most recent peace agreement. I don't know if that's exactly what it's called, but the the deal that Bukele, the President Bukele of El Salvador, is 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 signing or dying or dealing with MS thirteen. Is this any different from what we're seeing in the past? Uh, is it a transformation? How do you, how are you looking at the newest thing? Well, the, the, the they are very careful to distinguish the negotiations of twenty of the truce in yeah. 2014, 2012, 2014 to the pacto now the pact yeah. that they had with the government. What they realized in prison, what I was starting to say at that point was that they had all this power and what their power resided in was their territorial control and their votes. So they had no ideology, but they could go to Arena on the right or the FMLN on the left and say, how much will you pay for 300,000 votes? Okay. How much will you? So they would negotiate in blocks of what they, of delivering their votes, which was an incredibly effective way to gain political power. And essentially with Bukele, they, he brought them in not only, he, first he's, if, as the U.S. has now publicly identified, his uh, deputy uh, security minister for what they call uh, for social fabrics, Tejido Social, which runs all the social programs for the gangs, is a gang member. And the, the head of- Current or former? Kermer. Um, well, he's, he's been in and out. He clearly doesn't call himself a gang member yeah. now, but he has a long history. documented history of, you never, and you don't with, leave with those. With the MS? Well, no, with, he was DSO actually. Trump, yeah. Okay. But, but he, he, he was participated in the 2012 negotiations okay. and gained the trust. Was he a negotiator for- He was one of the negotiators on the, yeah. So it's, it's a long, very short mm -hmm. story, but this places the MS-13 with access to the highest levels of government, which mm -hmm. they've never had. Before. He's a minister. He's a deputy, a vice minister. Vice minister. Yeah. And the head of prisons is, comes out of the same background. Okay. And if you look at the- Appointed by the president. Appointed by the president. Fully knowing. I mean, there's no, there are pictures of these guys. I mean, there, there's no yeah. mystery to, to their background. And when they were, when Bukele came into office, there was a lot of reporting on this, like- this is Carlos Marroquin, known as Sleepstone, who's now the vice minister of- uh, <laughs> The of vice Secretary. minister's name is Sleepstone? Oh, that's his nickname, yeah, Sleepstone. <laughs> okay. uh, 
<laughs> Only in El Salvador. His real name is Carlos Marroquin, but okay. and Osiris Luna, who's the head of prisons. So there was no, it wasn't a secret yeah. what was happening. As he began his plan, control territorial, this territorial control plan, which was Bukele's big thing, a lot of those functions were turned over to the gangs. So that the gang members were now getting official government assistance in the communities they controlled, which gave them direct control over the population's access to any number of things. Mm. So it's very different from what happened in 2012, 2014, or what happened later with Sanchez Seren, which, which that was just a pure money for votes. Yeah, it was, it was kind of transactional. It was very transactional. And it didn't last long. What, it lasted a year, two years maybe? And then, but this one has put them in the, you know, with access. Yeah. So now they have not only diputados, deputies in the National Assembly, or the, in El Salvador you have the deputy, and then you have the, what they call the suplante, the person who acts for the deputy when yep. the deputy isn't there. More than a dozen of the suplantes are MS-13 members. Wow. And so they now have... They're getting political power. Their political power and starting with the first truce, but accelerating, they had a specific, well-articulated policy of putting their people into the military and police. Okay. And so now you have, the defense minister said at one time they had over 1,000 MS-13 in the army, which wow. is probably a small number. Uh, the police have been a heavy focus. We don't know how many are there. So if, if that's been going on for almost a decade, imagine the levels that these guys have gotten to. And so, the, the Minister of Security and the, and the current Attorney General both have had long-standing contracts, contacts as lawyers for the gangs. Hmm. So it's, it's, uh, it's a very different landscape than just negotiating. Uh, it, what it sounds votes. like in some levels is the previous negotiations being that they were transactional, but it kind of opened this door, this door that the gangs or MS or General didn't really know was available to them until... Exactly. Uh, they saw the, the benefits of that kind of negotiation or that kind of positioning, I would say, that kind of positioning inside the country, and they adapted to that Very reality. Very much so. And, and they have, you know, they, they study a lot. I mean, one of the, I think, great misconceptions about the MS-13 is that they're sort of uneducated lumpen, which, you know, cer certainly there is an element of yeah. that there. But they spend a lot of time in prison discussing lessons learned, reading, yeah. and figuring out, like, what went wrong. So... When I first started dealing with the gangs in the prison system, I, I said, how much do you charge to escort a load of a kilo you know, per kilo of cocaine from eastern El Salvador, from San Miguel to the western border to Guatemala? Mm -hmm. And the guy said, you know, we charge $600 because that was the biggest number that he could possibly take. 600 By the end of the- He's probably bragging about that to his uh, friends. Yeah, He's and, like, yeah. And, but by the end of that, they realized they could charge $60,000. Like they were like- 600 like well yeah we were kids like we didn't understand so that's how their their mind expanded yeah. they realized they could sit down and talk face to face with the minister make demands and have the demands met and they're like really they didn't know their leverage <laughs> they had no idea yeah. and this was like holy cow look what we can do the the oas had a permanent representative there who was in charge of negotiating you know, dealing with the gangs I'm just thinking like, wow, the OAS thinks we're important, right? They have a, they have a dedicated diplomat just for us. Um, so it was that kind of eye-opening experience that led them to think, okay, well, we don't have to stay here. We can now move into the political arena. So are you, are you concerned, uh, you know, being that you're looking at this pretty much uh, consistently and for a long time, are you concerned that in the near future we will see uh, MS-13 political parties, maybe not with the name, of course, but so basically the, the members, the former members in high-ranking levels of office, 
not just in one or two ministries, but pretty much can potentially win the presidency and then win, you know, capture the government. There's already a lot of talk among the MS-13, and I think this is where they're going to go, is what they call co-gobierno, co-government, with the, okay. with a political party that will give them the cover to do what they want to do. Because what the MS-13, even I think now, views themselves as sort of outside of society and superior to society. They call non-MS-13 people civilians, you know, where, where they're okay. not, they're not... So what they're not, you know, as good as yeah. them. So they want their own space. They're, I don't think that they aspire to be making policy that doesn't affect them particularly. Okay. But they want total autonomy in what they're doing and access to the resources. And I think that in this particular case with this government, it's gonna, they're well on their way to that. And what's really difficult, as you know, is once this is in place, it's very hard to... Yeah, to, to take that power no, away. No, they want, no. well, now they know where the money is in the state. They know how to steal. They, I mean, they run used car lots. They run whorehouses. They run restaurants. They run you know, massive structures to launder. Their, they have enough money now that they need to launder money, which yeah. they didn't have in the early days. So on the other side of autonomy would be impunity. Uh, and I imagine that that's part of the deal, right? They're, they're not going to want to, they're going to want to continue to extort and kill or do whatever their crimes they commit to be able to enforce their actions but without any consequences. Have we seen that? Well, I think what, what the negotiations always centered on initially was better prison conditions or getting out of uh, prison conditions. What Bukele has done is allowed so, a lot of the senior MS-13 leadership to leave the, the prison almost at will. They, will take them to, they can go to hotels. They, a lot of times they'll stick them in hospitals so that they don't arouse a lot of, uh, they don't attract a lot of external attention. But you're already seeing the, the prison is sort of a, a holding pen for people who can come and go as they want. It's a safe space for them now. And if you and talking to the, the prison officials there a while back, they were saying, look, the, the state controls the perimeter mm -hmm. moderately. They control nothing inside. Once you're through that gate, MS-13 has total control of the prisons. So they're the security of the... They are the security, yeah. yeah. The last time I went into their prison was now several years ago. The guy said, look, grab onto my belt because if you slip and fall here and they kill you, they won't find you for three days. Mm -hmm. Like there is no way, <laughs> there, there here, is yeah. no way you're getting out of it unless you, you know, you have to And you were like, let's go. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I tied a rope. <laughs> no, I, I hung on tight. Um, but that was, that was the level of control that there was no guard inside that could do anything. They weren't even there. They didn't no. pretend to control that. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the Bukele government because uh, I think here in the United States, there's been a lot of confusion. I mean, he's, he's obviously well uh, versed or he's savvy on social media. I mean, he has probably the best Twitter game of any uh, president that I've seen, Latin American president at least. Um, and, you know, he has his level of popularity, uh, I think, on, in the country, although I, th I think the numbers are always a little bit murky because you, I don't know exactly what's, uh, you know, even with polling, it's always a little bit uh, vague to know what's actually real and what's actually being manipulated. But even then, I'd say, and I'd be, you know, like, like you, Doug, I traveled to Latin America quite a bit, and I was actually shocked to go to other countries like El Salvador, I'm sorry, like Colombia or, or, or even uh, Peru, and they talk about Nayib Bukele. Yeah. Like, like people are like, oh, he's like a, seems like a cool politician, a cool president. So well, how do you see the current uh, Bukele government and also the president himself, Nayib Bukele? What, like, what, what, do, what do we not understand about What's happening in his government? Well, I think to me, he's the most dangerous paradigm of the populace, of the radical populism that he's immersed. You had, you know, the Bolivarian radical populism, Hugo Chavez and Rafael Correa and Evo and those guys. But what's new and interesting to me about Bukele is that he doesn't have any ideology. He came out of the FMLN, aligned with Arena, all of his 
inner circle comes out of different political parties of both sectors uh, without discrimination. So there's no ideology. He's a, he's a bucalista. Whatever is good for him is good for the country. And so his fight with the U.S. centers around their unwillingness to accept the fact that he can do whatever he wants and militarize yeah. the assembly and you know, destroy the Constitution. Um, it's, to him, that's not an ideological. It's, it's very personal for him. They don't like, you know, they're going after him personally. And I think what, what was not understood about Bukele is if you looked at his initial cabinet structure or his initial inner circle, you had about one-third that was former FMLN of the left, he had one third that was Ghana, which was the corrupt party that came out of, the, of, out of the right, Tony Saka. And a chunk of it was the old Areneros. I mean, oh, yeah. it, was, it was like this melding of the criminal, of the worst elements of all. The so you took the worst of all the old parties and, and put them into one giant mixing bowl, yeah. mixing bowl of corruption, uh, which he's having trouble now satisfying everyone's demands because now everybody wants more money than, mm. than they can get. But it's, it's been fascinating to watch because it's just been this whole, like we were talking about at the very beginning, there's, there's no, there are no rules. You can have been Tony Saka's or uh, Funes' spokesperson. He hates now former President Funes. And you can be good with his government as long as you're good with, with Bukele. And the other thing I think that, they, that is not understood about him is he brought in this little cadre of Venezuelans tied to the Leopoldo Lopez yeah. sector. A political advisor. Uh, political as his, well, they, they actually run the country in significant yeah. ways. They're, they're way more powerful than the ministries and the ministers. So there were Venezuelans that were tied to political parties in Venezuela, mostly tied to the opposition to the Maduro regime that I think to some level, some of them were involved even in the Guaido government and in the early parts of the, that, that government uh, that then went to become uh, advisors or basically managers inside of Salvador with the Bukele team? They started, almost all of them go to Leopoldo Lopez's Okay, so that's Voluntad Popular out of the opposition. They came as the uh, campaign advisors yeah. and then moved with incredible speed up the food chain yeah. to become you know the super ministers and administrators. But they're not official ministers, but they're like, no. No. like you know, basically run, run the ministries. Right. Yeah. The yeah. ministry, the ministries have a Venezuelan appointed to them that they have to report to before they can make decisions. Very sort of Soviet style. Yeah, it's like a little watchdog. Yeah, exactly. There. Okay. And how is that either steering Bukele in a direction or what is the effect of that? The effect of that is you have unelected officials with no... No, uh, no, that part, that part I don't know. No, I understand there's no accountability right there. Right. But, but what I'm saying is, what, are they driving him in a specific direction or? I th to them, it's all about making money. So okay. all of the schemes about, you know, the, the COVID stuff, mm. the, the massive projects that they keep saying they're doing that are never delivered, the stadiums, the uh, intra-oceanic railroad, the new uh, airport in San Miguel, all of that stuff flows through them and all the contracts flow through them. And so I, I think that my perception, my sense is that Bukele is not an administrator at all. Yeah. And if he, and so these people just administrate as long as he gets to be president. And so I think what they've done is essentially created this really uh, intense mafia state in which the normal actors in Salvadoran society no longer have the pull that they once did. That's why you see people like former uh, mayor of San Salvador, Neto Mason, in prison mm. because he had a good family. And no other, no other administration could have done, put him in prison, tortured him, and kept him there without charges for months now, mm. uh, if not more than a year, um, because they had the family connection. What the Venezuelans did is break that social 
structures of the upper class in El Salvador to get their own out of trouble okay. or, or negotiate, you know, negotiate. Power. Oh, I know your brother. Your brother was a colonel. He helped me. My dad saved your life during the war. Okay. All that goes out the window with the Venezuelans. So the other thing I've been hearing about El Salvador, um, and, and, and as much as Bukele wants to, um, you know, govern in the way he wants to govern without any consequences or any, any kind of uh, reprimand, uh, but I think he understands the world isn't completely like that, right? There, you may not want to get along with the United States, but there are other powers in the world. We're in a multipolar world at this moment. And a lot of things that I, I'm hearing about is uh, the role of China in his government, the role of Russia in his government. Uh, does he have that same attitude with these uh, external actors that he has with the United States, that he wants to do whatever he wants as long as they help him? Or is he, to some level, have to be understand that if you're not going to work with the United States, you might as well align with somebody because otherwise you're going to be like a sitting duck out there in the, in the international arena. Well, I think his initial perception was that China was going to ride to the rescue. And initially he had a very warm relationship with the Chinese ambassador. He signed a deal, right? Like a, he signed multiple yeah. deals with them. Um, but over time, what has happened, partly because of uh, the embrace of Bitcoin and as a, an official currency and things, the inability to really deal with the gangs and the fact that he's widely viewed as you know highly unstable, the Chinese have really backed away from him. Oh, have they? Not because uh, he didn't. He wanted them to. I mean, he he would be happy to embrace them because they, they were, as we know, they don't care about corruption issues. They don't care about environmental issues. They don't care about overfishing issues. Yeah. And, um, and so he was happy with that. But I think. Especially when is that a hedge? Do you think they don't think he may last, or I think it's partly they they don't think he's going to last. He's not sustainable over time. And I think the other big factor is that uh, Nicaragua recognized the PRC, and that gives them a much more stable base of operations. He's no longer essential to what they want to do in Central America. Okay. And so like, whoa, okay, well, I, and I think they'll do what they agreed they would do. To yeah, they're, they're not going to walk but away from the But they're not going to walk in with a billion dollars and rescue him either. Okay, he, he was looking for That's a That's what he was sure yeah. was going to happen. Okay, yeah. and how, did, how, did, how, did, how does China factor into the whole Bitcoin, you know, the, the cryptocurrency phenomenon in, in Salvador? Because China at one point was the number one, I think, uh, miner of Bitcoin in the world or just crypto in the world. Uh, what they call hash rate, I guess the the amount of electricity it takes to to, to mine the, the the cryptocurrency, but it then prohibited Bitcoin, right. uh, and it was like a hard stop. Uh, and how how does that factor into? I, I honestly don't really know, yeah. except that it's it's clear that the Chinese were not happy with the Bitcoin decision of yeah. Bukele to embrace it, and. That was, the, when you were saying whether the Venezuelans, that was one of the big initiatives of the Venezuelans was to push oh, for, the, for Bitcoin to come in. Sarahana and that group, yeah. very influential in yeah. moving that forward as the way, because as U.S. aid dried up, as uh, the economy was coming apart, they, excuse me, they were looking for a savior. They were looking for something that would salvage them. And they were sold through the Venezuelans on the Bitcoin idea. And then they were set, kept being sold. Well, the Chinese will take care of us. Nobody did. And now they're in really deep financial difficulties. Well, yeah, well, you know, the Bitcoin's, I think, slashed about 50% yeah. since, since the beginning of the year. So so let's uh, talk one more actor, then we're going to move on to, to some other stuff. But um, Russia, I've been hearing a lot about Russia uh, getting closer to El Salvador. Uh, Russian advisors, I don't know. Do, do, have you heard of this? Is this something that you've found in your research? What we have heard is that there are some of Maduro's Venezuelans who have, become, who have been trying to work out deals, in, particularly in Bitcoin and other things, for Bukele to help the Russians. Okay. I, we, I have not heard of the Russians being there physically in person. They okay. were in the Sanchez-Sedin government. Uh, government much closer. They were about to open an embassy. They mm -hmm. were 
really gearing up for, for El Salvador. And then they stopped all of a sudden, they just pulled the plug. They had bought the land, they had hired security, they had, you know, designed their embassy and then boom, it was, they walked away. Um, so we, what we know is that the Russians are very active in Guatemala. Yeah. Um, they're very active, obviously in Nicaragua oh. and crypto is, especially in the time of sanctions now is uh, something that they very much would like to help in moving their financial uh, assets around yeah. the world that way. And Bukele, I think they view as uh, amenable to that, yeah. but we have not heard, I have not heard of a lot of Russians on An the official Russian official Russian presence in right. I, I'm not, I'm not aware of that. Okay. It's there. Okay. And how about just to get round out the, the external actors, Iran, how, how's Iran's positioning on Saudi? I know they had the cultural center and they had some of the informal stuff, but has any engagement increased uh, in the years of the Bukele government? They were no uh, in our monitoring of what they're doing there. They reached their peak under Sanchez Seren yeah. when they had a lot of protection and were doing stuff. What we've seen under Bukele, who comes out of a Sunni family, is a lot of more activity of Tablighi Jamaat folks going oh, yeah. through there. A lot of uh, Turkish aid groups showing up that are uh, that have mon uh, Sunni Muslim fundamentalism. How about Qatar? Uh, Qatar's very big, and Bukele has been there quite often, and uh, and they're big in Bitcoin too. Uh, we don't have a lot of insight into what happens when he's over there, but Qatar's very relatively active in ways that we haven't been before. Turkey's very active in ways they have yeah. not been before in the hemisphere, but we have not seen Iran in playing in any specific way in there that uh, has, in fact, has dropped off considerably since Sanchez Seren was president. Okay. So it sounds like uh, Bukele, at some level, is trying to forge his own sort of alliances uh, based off uh, the projection that his advisors, the Venezuelans or others can project him to be able to just stay in power, keep in power right. and then grow that. Okay. Let, let's transition a little bit because uh, we talked Venezuela. And I think one of the things that me and you spoke a lot about over the years with the Bolivarian block, that's, we met, I can't remember exactly the year, but it might've been more than a decade ago. And I remember it was specifically about the Bolivarian block. And, right. and, and it was because here in Washington, like nobody was paying attention to it. There were very few people that were actually writing about it. You were obviously one of them. Um, and you were warning essentially the U.S. national security community. They're saying this is more serious than it looks. Like I know in, to some level, Guachavez looked like a clown at the right. UN and saying smells like sulfur, but uh, they had a plan or at least they had a semblance of a plan and they were advancing on, on what they wanted. And we saw it with Venezuela at first, but then we saw it you mentioned in Bolivia, we saw it in Ecuador and Nicaragua, all countries you've covered. Um, but then they had a dip a bit uh, for a time, uh, the, at least politically, they didn't, uh, weren't uh, rising to political prominence in, in other countries. Uh, but their movements, their networks never really went away. Uh, they always had uh, a semblance of non-state actors that were very active in the countries, and not just the countries that they operated in, but in the neighboring surrounding countries as well. Um, and then I remember you... Uh, were developing your concepts of the Bolivarian bloc, but also advancing it on how illicit actors were tied to it. And, I, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was 2012 when I first heard you speak about a concept that I think was helped me a lot in my research. And I think it's here at SFS, we, we consider one of the core concepts that, we, that, that most people need to understand when they talk about Latin America or even the world, but you know, in, in the region that we focus on, which is criminalized states. Right. So tell us a little bit how that concept was born. How did you uh, come to that? Uh, does it, was it born from the research you did on the Bolivarians? Does it date back through all the research you did back in the Civil War of El Salvador and the gangs? Um, and how do you see the criminalized states concept evolving? You know, we published a paper that Doug wrote that's available on our website uh, about Suriname. 
that causes a little bit of uh, um, um, discussions with the Suriname government, but uh, the free, previous Suriname government, we should say. But um, tell us about the concept. How was it born? How did it develop? Well, actually, it, I began thinking about it more fully when I was uh, the Washington Post bureau chief in West Africa, and I was covering the wars in Liberia and the wars in Sierra Leone. It's like Charles Taylor. Type, Charles yeah. Taylor. And if you were, if you at that point in time, the early 2000s, there's this whole sort of intellectual exploration of what the end of the Cold War meant and blah, yeah. blah. And there, was, there were all these indexes, what people were calling failed states. And mm -hmm. at the top of all the failed states was Liberia. And I was spending a lot of time there. And at first, and, and the, other, the other thing everyone talked about were ungoverned spaces. And, and I never liked that term. Well, initially I thought, okay, that makes sense. But the more I was there on the ground, particularly in Liberia, it became clear that there were no ungoverned spaces yeah. and that Charles Taylor was not a failed state at all. He was just behaving as a criminal enterprise. So he was, there was, when I was going there, there was no electricity, there were no functioning hospitals, there were no schools, there was no telephone service, there was nothing. But Charles Taylor was not trying to build a Westphalian state that functioned the way we thought a state would function. He was building a criminal extractive enterprise that was taking out diamonds, gold, and timber and making him very rich. And so that was the beginning of my, like, wait a minute, failed states is not a, not a good term for this because you're actually dealing with very successful states who are behaving as criminal enterprises. It depends what the goal is. Exactly. Yeah. It depends on what the goal is. So if you explored, and I was doing this a lot on the ground there in, in Liberia, you had Russian organized crime, you had Israeli organized crime, you had U.S. organized Everybody was there in a very small country the size of Maryland all staying in their lanes of criminal activity because they had a boss, Charles Taylor, who was dividing up the territory and collecting the profits. And I thought that's a much more coherent model of what we're seeing. And then when I came back to the to Latin America and was watching Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarians, they were doing the same thing. And the, it, what struck me is fundamentally different about these governments was that they were actually embracing transnational organized crime as an instrument of state. They weren't trying to fight it at all. <laughs> they were, they were, it, was, it was part of who they were. Yeah, well, what usually would be a problem for the police or the immigration authorities or whatever. Uh, they said, we're not going to fight this. We're just going to embed it within our uh, government structure. And, and we're going to strengthen it. We can do, what, is, what do states have? What can they give you? Protection. D diplomatic passports. Oh, that too. Yeah. Airplane registrations, oh. ship registrations, central bank access, all of those things that states have that, it w that are very, very useful to both criminal and terrorist organizations. And the beauty of it is you're operating at zero risk. I think you know, every business wants to minimize their risk, legitimate or not. If you can go into Venezuela or Liberia and negotiate with the top person, have your success guaranteed if you play by certain rules, that's great. That's, that's the best you can hope for and reap all the benefits of having this of state protection while you pay the state and they, you know, extract a benefit from you as well. And that's what got me sort of thinking about what had changed in the region. Why, why were, what were, what was fundamentally different about the Bolivarians and all the other authoritarian dictatorships that had come before it. And so that led you to, I think, publish a monograph, right? Uh, at the U S army war college at SSI right. strategic studies Institute, which I think is, is that the, the, prime document when it comes to the criminalized states? Is that where you mostly documented your, your research and your... That's where I first tried to fit it all together. And I think it's actually stood up fairly well over, yeah, yeah. over time as, as a conceptualization of... And, and that's what makes it a threat to 
other countries in the United States. That's what that's what makes a national security threat is that you're not talking about little criminal organizations, right? Even big criminals like the like the Kali cartel or yeah. the or you know Sinaloa cartel. You're talking about states that are acquiring the capacity, as Venezuela has been doing from Iran for for missiles for different things. Um, and the and the thing about it is that if two states agree that what they're doing is acceptable to both states. In their little world, that is not an illicit transaction. So if you want to ship cocaine from Venezuela to Iran and Iran agrees to accept the cocaine, you have not committed a felony in either state. Not in Venezuela. Right? Right? Not in Venezuela, not <laughs> or in Iran. Iran. Right. Yeah. So the con conceptualization of what is legitimate and illegitimate is fundamentally fragmented yeah. at that point. And I, I had a conversation with uh, General Breedlove when he was commander of NATO. Uh, I went to a conference where he was talking. He was talking about the Russians at that point but it struck me as exactly what we were seeing and still continue to see. And he said, the problem with we have as NATO with Russia is we think that we're all playing soccer. Mm -hmm. right? We all think we're on the same field. You get a yellow card if you're too rough. You get a red card if you're really rough and you're thrown out of the game. He said, the problem is that Russia is playing polo on our soccer field. There's, <laughs> different rules. There's no rule. You know, nothing yeah. that we do applies to them. And they don't view... Well, they have different rules. Right. Uh, yeah. they, right. They view there's, they're in the same space. Yeah but riding polo ponies over yeah. our soccer players. And that what struck me as fundamentally profound in what we're seeing when, you, when you're playing two different games and we keep thinking our rules will apply to them. Well, if we throw them out of the OAS, if we- We're enforcing our rules. Yeah, and they're like- No, that, 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 I think that's a point that we've shared. We talked about it with you know, different conversations, uh, uh, both in working groups and also just me and you, uh, that I've 100% uh, uh, been supportive of because I've seen the same thing develop over the time. And I said, you know, the international order is changing. And, and this right. happens in the world from time to time, right? You know, me, you, we were all born in this kind of uh, Westphalian democratic governance, representative democracies that we come to accustom to because it's all we've seen in our lives, right? But we think 100 years ago, 200 years ago, what the world was not like that. And, and right. monarchies were uh, dominating for much of a long period of time until uh, the 19th and then eventually the 20th century. So I think that this is, you know, we're living this moment now. We're living this moment of the world's changing. Um, in fact, um, uh, the, one of the reasons we do the podcast and not just the podcast, the videos is because and it kind of started with this question and I've asked it to several ministers in Latin America and some policymakers here. And I, the question is what makes uh, something illicit, illicit, right? Like what makes it illegal, right? And the first response on most common is, is the law, right? What makes the law the law? You go down that, that rabbit hole. But really, really came down to is, is a border is what makes it illicit because your definition of illicit ends at jurisdiction. It ends right. when you get to a certain border. That's why when you're any cop movie or any criminal movie that you say they're like racing to get out of state because they know right. cop gang chasing me I pass this border I'm free once I'm, I go right across the state across line, the state right. lines and so and so we realize that the borders mean something not necessarily just as a physical line on the map but they also mean something in terms of identity of a country its culture its makeup its legal frameworks and then you extend that to the, your concept of criminalized states and it's like if you're inherently designed to control territory and change the rules in that territory then your natural next objective is expand territory right. and move into your neighbor's territory and to control that. And I think the, the kind of glue or that maybe the ecosystem that becomes is illicit economies. And that's what I'm concerned because I'm seeing this happening in Russia. I'm seeing this happening in Latin America. I'm seeing this happening in Venezuela where, where the definition of what's an illicit activity is on its head. Uh, and like we call it illicit gold tra trafficking or the gold smuggling 
uh, and the Orinoco, and they're like, no, that's our gold exports, you know, and we're right. seeing our gold exports to Turkey right. or to Iran or wherever we want to. The way we do it doesn't matter if it's ALN or the FARC or right. whoever that's a custodian right. of that gold. And I think that comes at it. Not, and I think that criminalized state guns, because this was happening in a, which you were very much involved in this, and, and as was I, was a period where convergence was a co concept that was being discussed in the defense community, right? The idea right. of criminals and terrorists, maybe not synchronizing their strategic objectives, but there's a, a, a logistical community that's starting to bridge these two together. But I always felt it was missing that third overlapping circle, which was your work, which was the criminalized state. Because there's a convergence just naturally between criminals and terrorists because of logistics, pretty right. much. But then there's another circle that no one really was talking about at the time until you uh, brought that to the table, which was what's the state's role right. in that convergence? Right. And there's obviously some states, many states, that are fighting that, you know, successfully or unsuccessfully right. on some level. But then there are other states that are embracing it right. and saying, you know, you know, we're not going to fight that, we're going to run with it. Right. Um, and so what, where do you see the criminalized states phenomenon in Latin America today? Because Venezuela's... I think for sure we wrote the paper of Suriname and now we all, all clear. That was the old Suriname government. Right, right. The one that was, I think it was Desi Batorsi was the president. Right. Uh, and, and obviously he was a convicted narco trafficker. Yes. So right. it wasn't too hard to uh, figure out that, that that was a, a, a government that was based with a high level of criminality. But what are states in Latin America are you concerned about at this point? Well, I, I think what's more concerning even than the individual states is the f complete fragmentation of what you were saying of what is illicit and illicit. There, for a period of from post-World War II until fairly recently, there was generally a consensus that of what was illicit and what was illicit. And that fragmentation and the now arguing over the definition of democracy. Is democracy Chavista, Bukele? I I am the president, therefore I am the state, therefore yeah. if you're against me, you're against the state. Participatory democracy. Yeah, or, or participatory, or, or a small D democracy where of, you know, of voting and alternates in power and that sort of thing. So I think to, that to me is the, that lack of consensus, and that's why I think Bukele is so dangerous, is he brings a completely non-ideological layer to that where you can be anybody and be part so of he, that is group because they often characterize him as a right but i don't see him as right or left he, he came out of the fmln i mean that's, that, yeah, that's that and then he embraced there's no coherence except yeah. himself in it and that's what i think makes those actors so dangerous is that they're they're not going to behave in ways that we would have found predictable in the past it kind of throws like the political spectrum on its head because like yeah. he's not going to fit any clean box he's just gonna he, he will deal with anyone who he um, you know, if Russia showed up, fine. If China shows up, fine. If Thailand shows up, fine. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? It, it, as long as he's getting what he wants from it. So I think that I who, think who are his adversaries? You you say in, internally? Um, well, both internally and in the neighborhood. Well, you know, he's. I think that's one of the tragedies of uh, the, of Central America right now. Particularly, you have the Giamate government in Guatemala, yeah. which has serious difficulties and is deeply embedded with other criminal groups. You have, you had Juan Orlando Hernandez in Honduras, in, who is indicted now and extradited. indicted and extradited, clearly brother deeply was criminal, yeah. criminalized. And we have, you know, I think it's clear that the new president, Xiomara, has, uh, Xiomara Castro has ties to different mafia groups as opposed to clean break from those yeah. mafia groups. So I think that, I think uh, he doesn't really have, I think Costa Rica has been by far the most articulate and vocal on okay. issues of, dem of democracy, not in terms of 
internal politics about standing for traditional democracy and the need to respect the rule of law, et cetera. In general or pointing at Bukele with both. concern? I think yeah. both, yeah. They've okay. been there. They're, the speeches of the Costa Rican ambassadors at the OAS and UN have been really quite, and just now at the Summit of the Americas have been quite spectacular in terms of Did you hear about that, uh, the defense. cyber attacks? Um, Costa no. Oh, the ma there's a major cyber attack. Oh, the ransomware stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But these are like super big attacks yeah. on on Costa Rica. I talked to uh, some of the folks in uh, in their government, and and they're really concerned mm -hmm. about this and trying to figure yeah. out what's going on. Uh, but no, I agree. I think uh, Costa Rica is, and Costa Rica has always been kind of the uh, the outlier. The outlier, yeah. in, in, and and Panama is not fully on board, but they're also not going going to fight with Bukele. So. Um, and how's, how's Bukele's positioning with uh, Venezuela, considering that he has Venezuelan advisor, but from the opposition, the you know classic opposition, uh, has he has he been vocal against the Maduro regime? Is he acting in, in their against their interests? Or when he was, or even Nicaragua for that matter, which is kind of well, when he was friendly toward the United States, he actually was fairly harsh on Venezuela. He's gone completely silent. I'd say the last two years, nothing. Okay. Um, and he's is that because yeah. he thought that. I'll say this because the United States wants to hear this. Right. I think he viewed everything as a quid pro quo. Okay. You're mm -hmm. going to help me. I'll, I'll talk mm -hmm. about this. Um, unlike I would say, for, uh, for example, Boric in Chile, who's been, uh, who has his you know, internal issues, but he's been very clear on Venezuela and other things in terms of, of democratic governance. So I think that that's, you know, something that's interesting to watch. The other place I think is very concerning because of its relationship with Russia and its deep Chinese influence is Argentina. And I think oh, yeah. Chile, not for its democratic, not because of Boric, but because of, you know, the Chinese now own 56% of their electrical grid. Yeah. They own the fiber optics. They're putting the fiber optics into the Antarctic region. They're going to control all of that communication, et cetera. Um, that's what, uh, those are the countries I worry about most. Yeah, the, the Southern Cone. The Southern Cone, yeah. No, I, I think that those, honestly, it's really hard to choose because there's so much things going on in the region right. and, and it's all not uh, good uh, for the most part. Where I see Boric to some level, yeah, I agree. His rhetoric isn't the worst and uh, there's a lot of concerns in some, some of the way he's managing and governing in the country. But I would say what I am concerned about in terms of Chile is, is and this is just broad in, in all Latin America's, Going back to that concept of, of borders, and I see them remaking borders. I think this is a serious thing. I don't think it's just something that they're going to do um, um, through rhetoric and you know big speeches about the, the old colonial in, times. In, but what, in, in what sense? Uh, binational governments, binational ah. uh, 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 congresses, the ability to them, you know, basically have border controls basically erased and just have you know almost like what Europe ended up happening to some level. It didn't go the full distance, but uh, basing transit free zones and things like that. And what happens is, and, and I think the most powerful element of that is the economy. Cause once the illicit act, once the illicit economy overtakes the formal economy, then the governing structure is just going to follow because that's where all the money is. And that was the thing I think a lot of people with this understand about Venezuela was Venezuela had eight different motors of illicit economy, at least, right? right. That, and, and it was fragmented into the different regions. Like if you're in the East, it's mining and gold. If you're in the West, it's oil and contraband, narco trafficking, and it's all kind of milded. And then the thing is, once you get to the border of Colombia or Guyana or Brazil, that doesn't stop. It just continues to fleet, fleet into over, there. Yeah. And then the governing structures, then they get taken over. And then eventually if you put free transit and all that stuff, you're, that borders in name only. It doesn't actually fully exist. And then it, it takes a, a, 
you know, political element there that just says, you know, we'll sign an agreement, we'll recreate the Gran Colombia or yeah, the Alto yeah. Peru or whatever. And that's where I think this, the, what you're mentioning with the Southern Cone really becomes something because then you could ch change trade routes, you could change uh, port access, you could change a lot of things that the, that the international order currently considers the way the world works. Uh, and and right. I, I see this as a very ambitious project. Doesn't mean it's all going to happen, um, but I definitely see it advancing. And I think Latin America, and this, I think this is the, the common in our, we've had for, 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 since I've known you is Latin America is a lot more important than what I think people give it credit for, and at least here in Washington and other places. It's, it's, you know, we, we've focused a lot on the Middle East in terms of the wars and things that happen and everywhere in the world has, has challenges and all have strategic interests, but Latin America is becoming very, very concerning for, I think, U.S. national security. I, I think in that paper, the one, the criminalized states paper, you, I think at the, the subtitle, you put like a tier one, national security uh, threat right, an emerging tier right, one. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, I think that the, um, the elements are there. And like you said, I, th I think the changing world order is reality. I, mean, I don't think we, you know, we don't live in a, in a unipolar world. And I think to a certain degree, I might not certain degree, I think people will choose what they're going to choose in their, in their governments and they're going to reap, you know, the governments that they, that they elect. The problem is when in a, democratic system if you make a mistake within what president you elect someone else and you, you can take corrective action i think what yeah. and the, but with the bolivarians and the authoritarian tendencies is that once you make a, a mistake or you do something that you want to undo you can't undo it anymore that yeah that, they're in power forever that, that that option is gone mm -hmm. and you know as the muslim brotherhood used to say is democracy is like a bus you ride it till you get where you want is that the brotherhood then you get i always thought it was erdogan I, 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 they caught each I, other. So, yeah. Maybe so. I, I read it a long time ago with yeah. when I was doing brother. You get off on your stop. Yeah, you get off your stop, and then that's that's it. And I think the Bolivarians are very much like that. And I think the non-ideological authoritarians like Bukele are very much the same. They're you know they want they got they keep saying we were democratically elected, as was Chavez, as was Morales, as was Correa. But then when it, when, it, when is he up for re, technically up for re-election? Uh, who Bukele? Uh, Bukele is in twenty twenty four. He's okay. three years. That's out not of that five. far. Yeah. No. So do do you see? Because um, I mean, the Chavez model and the, the the Ortega model was you know you could say maybe legitimately elected at least the first time. The yeah. first time, right? Yeah. Uh, and then they start changing the rules. They start changing the things. They start pressuring, intimidating. They do all the the the, uh, the underhanded tactics, uh, using referendums to constantly change the constitutions and things like that. Hold assemblies. Uh, and then they just never leave, right? right. And they, oh, they die in the case of Hugo Chavez for cancer. And then, you know, Nicolas Maduro comes up, who was his VP and his foreign minister. Um, do you see Bukela changing this and just indefinitely running to power? Do you see that, basically what I'm asking is, do you see this next election being a clean election? No, I, I think that it's, it's designed not to be. I think what Bukele has done, or people around him have done, is take the elements of the other, either, both the Chavistas, but particularly Ortega. I think Ortega is the model. Okay. He really wants, you know, I think one of the, we were talking earlier about his popularity, and I think you're right, it's, it's largely inflated, but in part it exists because he has taken over all the media, silenced the independent media, gotten rid of all the human rights reporting folks that might be there. And so the dominant narrative internally in, in uh, El Salvador is very different from what the narrative is outside, what the reality is seen from outside. But he's put in, he's created all of these these mediums which he controls and floods the, the zone with it so that he control he's controlled internally the narrative what he's really frustrated with is that 
the external narrative has gotten worse and worse. Yeah. <laughs> and internally with all these mass incarcerations and hundreds of people going now to search for their families in prisons and they're being held without charges and no one knows where they are, the internal narrative is also starting to erode. So he's determined to stay. I mean, and he'll do whatever it takes to, to stay there. Is, is um, do you see El Salvador or himself uh, becoming a regional factor? Like, uh, like you know, Chavez was at his time or others. Uh, do you see him becoming a regional player? Or just really concentrating on Salvador? And well, he, he certainly dreams of being a regional player. Uh, El Salvador, you know, Venezuela had oil money and a lot of things yeah, to yeah. offer to become a regional player. El Salvador doesn't have much it can, it can throw out there. Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin, <laughs> right. If that had worked, uh, yeah. then maybe maybe that. But I think that he has been quite successful even in Guatemala. Is that kind of behind the Bitcoin move? Maybe thinking about like, I'm going to start a movement here and maybe... He's going to independent, become independent of all external pressures and ways to operate. And so that was, that was clearly part of it. He That's was interesting. To, he could become like a sanctions evasion hub and exactly. that gives him yeah. leverage and, you know, yeah. uh, um, so, uh, I think Doug, I mean, you've done a tremendous amount of work. Um, obviously I learned a lot from your, what are you working on now, nowadays? Anything you want to plug, anything you want to promote? Well, we just published at NDU a paper on which is called Gangs No Longer, which looks at the evolution of the MS-13 oh, and the PSSN Brazil. And oh, it's a comparative study looking at arguing that we should no longer call them gangs. That's, that's a term that minimali minimizes their true import. Okay. That's because um, of, because of the perception of gangs are young. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And the, and they don't, they're not traditional transnational organized crime groups either because they're community based. You know, the, the thing about the PSSA and the MS-13 and the, the ASOCIO is that they do come out of their communities. You know, they're deeply, so we, we argue for calling them, uh, community embedded uh, transnational armed groups, which is a horrible <laughs> is name. Is that an acronym? It's a C tag, but it's, it's a horrible one. I, 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 we're hoping we're for working on it. Better. We're working exactly. on it. Yeah. That's not the fine one, but I think that there is that space. But you want to add the community base so they understand that this is something that has a, a, a local. Um, I would say, I don't want to say credibility. Uh, roots. I think roots, they're yeah. deeply rooted there with their families are there. And so they're not cartels in the traditional sense, but they're certainly not what we think of as gangs because yeah. they control economic power, military power. Papers yes. available on? At, uh, at NDU's website. Uh, yeah. Uh, NDU. It's, NDU. It, uh, it's, uh, it's, in, it's uh, the Institute for... National Strategic Studies. Okay. Um, I don't know, it's probably INSS. Yes, yeah, it's, it's at the National Defense yeah. University Institute yeah. for National Strategic it's gang, Studies. Gangs no longer. Is gangs what no longer. Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't read it yet, so I'm looking forward to reading that paper. Is a lot of what we discussed in the paper a little bit the evolution. Yes, here. about the evolution of the MS-13, and then looking at the PSSA in Brazil, which is a much bigger group yeah, than no, the we, MS-13. We, we talked about the PSSA in another episode, and it's yeah. very interesting in the sense that they're. Uh, Growing in other countries, right? They they've they have really yeah, and they have their whole. But the the thing I found fascinating about them, different from the other groups, is that they have a deep cultural component. They have their own music. They have their own websites. They have their whole sort of ecosystem that you can survive in there. It was the MS thirteen has not done that yet. Yeah, actually, the, I got to ask you this last question. I, I, I completely forgot about it. But have you been following the case of the the prosecutor that got killed from Paraguay in Colombia? I have. I'm going to be in Paraguay next week in okay. part to try to that. get, get <laughs> so, caught up because I, yeah. I, I don't, I, you know, I, I only know literally what I've okay. read in the papers yeah. so far, but I hope to. We'll have a conversation after that. Okay. When you, when you Absolutely. Because yeah. I, actually that's, it's a case. I, I knew, uh, did you meet uh, the prosecutor before? I did not know. Okay, so I, did I, not know I had him. met him on a few occasions at conferences and things like that because he, he is actually one of the star prosecutors. He right. was involved very right. much in a lot of the high level cases 
both on uh, organized crime groups, but also on international terrorist groups, namely Hezbollah. And um, uh, what was interesting, did you hear about the arrests? I just read about yeah. that, yeah. So what was interesting to me was the way those uh, operation kind of come folded in terms of the logistics and uh-huh. the Medellin uh, being right. planted all at Medellin and carrying out the hit in uh, in near Cartagena. Right. So I think that I th- what you know I've said is, and I said it on one of the episodes of the podcast was essentially that um, I believe that, and I credit to the Colombian authorities, the Paraguayan authorities, whoever was involved in getting these arrests. Uh, but the intellectual authors, I think, is still uh, a mystery. Like yeah. who actually? Yeah. We we know the logistics of how they carried out the hit. I think they even caught the assassin, uh-huh. shot him okay. in the face. But the, who ordered this? And there was at least right. one payment of about one hundred fifty thousand dollars. And you know, and, and, and unfortunately, it reminds me to some level of the Nisman murder. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which we yeah. You were well. Well, and you think you knew Alberto Nisman? I, I did. Yeah. That was a very tragic case. Which no, nothing ever. Uh, and in this government, nothing, yeah. nothing will. It doesn't happen in Argentina <laughs> doesn't at some pines, yeah. but uh, no, Doug, thank you uh, again. Uh, you can find, and then you're, you, uh, IBI consultants, you can find IBI all your consultants.net. Yeah. Uh, you can also, you find the paper on the gangs uh, at the national defense university Institute, national strategic studies, gangs, no longer gangs, no longer right? gangs, no longer Doug. Always great to see no, you. Thank you, Joseph. Appreciate it. Great to touch. see you. And thanks for all your support. And, you know, you've been on the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff too. I think yeah. Honestly, you, the work you've done and others, and it's helped me understand to focus on certain things um, because there isn't a lot of good work on Latin America. That was, that was my experience coming. I mean, obviously you've been doing it long, longer than I have. When I started around 2009 to 2008, 9, 10, I remember that I was like, where's like the good literature on this? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't. No, a lot of it. And, and that's why I got, came into Max's, well, Dr. Max Manwaring is a, a mutual friend and a mentor for me. Um, his work was very good. Right. Very, very empirical, well-researched. Uh, uh, and you knew him from back in the... In the wars. wars. <laughs> in the 80s, yeah. Uh, well, a yeah. long time. Yeah. Well, Doug, we'll have you back. Uh, Appreciate thank you it. again. Uh, right. And again, if this Border Wars podcast, if you haven't subscribed, subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, or on Spotify or Apple, wherever you listen to your podcast. And we look forward to listening and being with you in the next episode. Thanks, Jessica. Subscribe to the Border Wars podcast and visit our website at securefreesociety.org. See you in the next episode.